You are listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. In today's bonus episode with myself, Elizabeth Leiba, I will be taking a deep dive into innovative methods to teach kids reading and math online for parents and for teachers with Eaton Donald. Eaton is the Director of Strategy for Readably, an organization that focuses on multi-sensory learning using color, position, order, shape, and motion to go beyond what we know as a traditional methods for teaching reading using phonics for an immersive experience to teach kids how to read more quickly and effectively. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Elizabeth Liba, and on the line, we have Eaton Donald. Eaton, how are you? I'm very well, Elizabeth. How are you today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so You're much for asking. The, um, the uh, isolation, uh, the pa- <laughs> pandemic isolation. I- I am, you know, it's it's the new normal. You know, my five-year-old is running around here somewhere, so we'll definitely get into some of you guys' strategies for the homeschooling, because a lot of us are kind of navigating just how to balance work, home, school for our kids, so, yeah, and you guys are ho- holding up okay with everything that's going on? Yeah, I've got two kids at home as well. One's in high school and one's still in elementary school, and, um, you know, we're just trying to keep... Uh, uh, like a regular routine so that we don't kind of devolve into, um, you know, full out vacation relaxation because that's <laughs> my, kid, my <laughs> kids are already thinking they're on vacation. Um, Same yeah. here. I could relate to that. Yeah. So let's jump right into it. Where are you today? Where, where are you joining us from? You from the uh, crisp spring weather of Toronto, Canada. Wow, that is awesome. Well, I'm in warm and humid South Florida, so we couldn't be any more opposite yeah. as far as weather is concerned. But why don't you give us a little bit of background? Tell us a little bit about your background, what led you to where you are today in education. Just give us kind of maybe the Cliff Notes version of your journey as far as education is concerned. Yeah, well, it started in um, 1993. I was in Osaka, Japan, and I wanted to learn Japanese. And I went to a bunch of schools and I flunked out each time because I thought I'm not really good at learning languages. And this is um, a rather humiliating part of my past, but uh, it is what it is. I um, went from and, and, and it's funny because all the other people in the class seemed to be doing just fine, but I was not. Uh, they were from different countries. Some were from the U.S., some were from you know U.K., uh, other parts of Europe, Korea, China. And they just seemed to pick the language up much faster than I did. In fact, the Korean and Chinese students, they, they, they were uh, stunningly fast. And I was wondering, what am I doing wrong here? So I, I pretty much resolved that, like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to learn Japan. I'm going to live here for a little bit, but I'm not going to be able to learn it. Um, learn how to speak Japanese. So what happens, I was uh, walking one day and I saw this little tiny, uh, very amateurish sign that said, um, learn Japanese. We have a different way of doing it. And, you know, uh, I went to check it out. And I thought, it doesn't hurt to check it out. They offered me a couple of free lessons, so I went there. And uh, it was radically, radically different. The teachers didn't even speak. They just set up these scenarios, these linguistic situations. And then they guided me through the expression of um, the Japanese language, not translating, no listen and repeat, nothing that you would normally get in a, in a, in a traditional language class. And I was somewhat amazed by this. So what I did is I, um, I um, enrolled. And after about a month, I took my teacher aside and it was a little small group class. And I said, hey, what is the, what, what are we doing here? Like, where does this come from? 
she led me to this bookshelf. The bookshelf had uh, this work of this scientist. His name was Dr. Caleb Gatenio. He worked mostly out of New York City in his lifetime, although he was originally from the UK. And uh, he worked in foreign languages and mathematics. He was a PhD in mathematics and a PhD in psychology and had a very, very different look at um, the, the field of education. In any case, pulled a couple of books off the shelf. One of them calls, was called The Mind Teaches the Brain. Another one was called The Science of Education. Another one was called The Universe of Babies. And I read them all. And I came back to the teacher and I said, I haven't a clue what this guy's talking about. I don't understand anything. It's English words. I get it. But I don't understand any of the concepts here. So I read them again. And over the next two years, I read everything that this guy had written in English. Uh, he had written in French, English, Italian, German. He spoke 40 languages when he died. And uh, he was a real wow. polymath. So um, I was uh, impressed with myself having just read the, you know, the, the 50 books or so that he had written in English. And um, I was feeling that I was getting a handle of this thing. And then I came back to Canada and I, I called up his widow in uh, New York City, who was still carrying on um, his work. I said, hi, I'm Eaton. I've you know, read some of your husband's work. Maybe next time in New York City, we can get together and talk. And she said, sure. And she was like 68 years old or something like that at the time. And um, huh. so uh, I, I booked a plane ticket for a couple, a couple of weeks out. And then I called her and said, hey, I'm going to be in New York City. Mind if we get together? Do you have time? And that started this uh, process for me. And then ever since then, I've been a student of uh, my own learning in a very, very different way. And um, I have uh, just immersed myself. Uh, I eventually took over uh, all of the intellectual property of the scientist, Caleb uh, Gutenio scientist. I, I purchased it from his widow who, who, who had asked me to carry on the work. So it's a little bit of a passion uh, rather than just like a, um, um, you know, a normal sort of like commercial en enterprise. And uh, I have been really uh, examining um, what needs to be done, why it needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and why the current stuff is broken. So I have a very unique perspective. It's from outside the traditional channels. Uh, we do believe that we are really onto something, and um, it's different, and it's really needed. It's never been needed more than it is right now. You know, Elizabeth, I, um, I've been looking uh, just very, 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 just a couple days ago, I looked at the, uh, the Department of Education scores in the United States for literacy. And they track the scores every two years from 1992 up to 2017. And I think that 2019 stuff may be just hot off the press. But in any case, if you look at the grade four improvement in reading scores, uh, it has improved a whopping 0.088% per year since 1992 in the last 25 years. That adds up to about a 2% wow. improvement, which is really statistically going sideways. If you look at grade eight, the improvement has been a point a whopping 0.1%. And if you look at grade the tw grade 12 assessments, it is minus 0.7%. So they haven't gone anywhere. They, they've essentially all gone sideways. And you, you, hmm. you, you look at this and you, you have to ask yourself, well, why after all this effort and all this scrutiny on these things, have we failed to improve at all? So that's a burning question we have. Very good question. So tell me about your endeavor because um, readably, I was on your website and I'm fascinated by any, like you said, in, in, you know, our podcast, we typically lean toward topics that affect higher education, but with the pandemic, like we talked about a lot of us as parents, we're homeschooling our children, we're, we're working on looking at, well, how can we help them? How can we help them be more successful? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? A lot of testing, I know in the state of Florida has been canceled for the remainder of the year. 
And for a lot of us, it's given us pause, this whole pandemic and this, this scare has given us pause to think about how we teach our children. And we're all overwhelmed. We're like, wow, these teachers, they have a lot on their plates. What does your organization do or how do you see changing and in, in trying to develop initiatives that will improve some of those startling statistics that you uh, just mentioned yeah, so, for us? So uh, we are focused on uh, delivering uh, quality educational experiences through online means and supplemented by a caregiver or a non-professional teacher such as a parent or perhaps we have a freelance sort of non-professional. And for, this is for uh, what age do you really gear your services? Yeah, so for? we're elementary age, K to six. Yeah, gotcha. and pre-K as well. And we feel that if, uh, with respect to reading and mathematics, if you if you do the job correctly in the early stages, then the students are almost able to do it by themselves the rest of the way. In fact, depending on uh, you know motivation, access to resources, and things like that, they should be able to do it themselves, just as we do it ourselves with respect to learning how to speak. There's critical, critical sure. beginning periods that really set the stage for um, for uh, what we do later in life. And if you miss those critical periods, it's a real, real difficult to go, you know, to go forward. You have to go back and get that sort of foundational. We think that we can make that greatest impact at the beginning of the process. And we are using the online mechanism. That's what we've chosen as two ways, not as a replacement. And it was a not initially conceived as a replacement uh, for, uh, you know, sort of in classroom experiences or or face to face experiences. It was meant to augment those experiences. So it was meant to be tools that people mm -hmm. who wanted to deliver education in a distributed manner uh, remotely, they can use these resources to better their um, their educational outcomes. So, you know, um, we don't see it, Elizabeth, as an either or. There are some students that really need a face-to-face, mm -hmm. -face, and there are some students that do not. They can prosper just fine with an online application or an online resource. But we cannot make uh, mm -hmm. the uh, assumption that one size fits all for everybody. We're all different. We all learn in different ways. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, our approach has been a flexible toolkit that can be used either remotely, uh, remotely with a non-professional, or even um, in uh, certain situations to augment in-classroom experience. And what makes your approach different? What is different from, we talked about those statistics, what is different that would improve or, or what tools can you give either the, the, to augment the classroom experience or maybe for the, the parent that wants to deliver some additional experience at home or maybe homeschooling now because school is obviously um, changed in terms of how we're delivering education for our, our students to keep them safe. So what makes your approach different or, or, or more effective for that, um, yeah, for that level question. of student? So first of all, we start with the student. We start with the actual human being and we start with what the human being um, is really good at and what they're poor at. So, for example, if you look at your five senses, um, you know, you've got touch, you've got smell, you've got vision and so on. Um, the visual field of input processes more information than all of the other five senses, all of the other senses combined. And um, hmm. it suggests that. Uh, we have a real strength for this visual medium. Like it's, it's a very, very important part of how we uh, filter and process the world. Um, the, the, the curious thing about the visual medium, if, if you have say 10 billion bits of information, 10 billion bits of information is typically what hits your retina. So you look at something around the room in a field, in a park, in a classroom, in your book or whatever it might be, there's 10 billion individual bits of information hitting that retina. Now, the interesting thing is, it's got to go from the retina to the optic nerve 
to the visual cortex. And then it's got to go to our sort of processing faculties. And when you fill, when you do the filtering all the way down, you get to about a hundred bits of information that you can actually process in your mind. So what is happening in this filtering process? Well, the filtering process is taking out all the things that are irrelevant because much of what we take in visually doesn't really matter. If you want, if you're looking at a, 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 um, a classroom, there's so much visual input that's in there, but very little of it might be um, necessary for the, for, the, for the task at hand. So we have, Elizabeth, what's called an attention spotlight. The attention spotlight is an attribute of human beings. We take our attention, we zoom in, we zoom out, we pan, we scan the field, we stop, we focus on certain elements. And this is what we do. We don't even have to be told to do this. Nobody tells um, uh, students, uh, you know, their, their, their students, hey, take your attention spotlight here. They may say pay attention. They may say focus here. But the reality is, is that we have this um, high capacity uh, sensory input and then we filter it and we filter it down. So now we have the, the question about what's important to focus on and what's not important to focus on. What should we really be paying attention to? What is the thing that matters? And this is the question we ask ourselves when it comes to learning to read. What really, really matters? So how are we different? We are starting with the capacity of the human being and looking at the best way for them to make their way through the field of reading. Now, the field of reading is very, very complicated, sure. but it's actually quite easy. It's much more, it's much simpler than speech. So um, we'll, we'll take something like, um, um, uh, uh, like words in English, and uh, it's very universally accepted that decoding, decoding words is, a, is an essential skill. So what happens when you decode? You scan that word, so you're taking all the sensory input, and then you're deciding where to chop it up. And decoding is this process of breaking things into individual parts. And then what we have to do is we have to take those individual parts and re-encode them through speech. So we could say individual parts like um, in the word um, pat, there's, a, there's the, the, the plosive with the P, there's the vowel sound with the A, and then there's a, the, the, the rounding of the mouth with the T. So they have to break those things into individual graphemes and phonemes, and then they have to re-encode them into the word pat. Now, how are we different? What we do is we know that this is a process that happens. So we make it explicit visually. We use color to help decoding. We use motion to help decoding. We can use motion visually to break things apart and put them back together again so students can see exactly what happens. And so now we are managing and guiding that attention spotlight through the use of color, through the use of motion, through the use of various techniques that we have. Um, but it's specifically to work around the human capabilities, not the curriculum. So that's the big difference here. Most of what we see out there is a management and delivery of curriculum. We're trying to manage what, um, what students actually do with their attention spotlight. And you'll see, you've got, you mentioned you've got young kids at home. They will, they will put their attention on whatever sure. catches their interest. And you can see how focused they are. In fact, if you watch your kids very carefully when they're playing by themselves and sort of like directing their own experiences, they function like little scientists. They make hypotheses, they test things, <laughs> they, they uh, observe feedback from the environment. They take trials and they retry and they retry and they retry until they figure things out. And when they figure things out, they practice it and they practice it to the point where it's automated. And when it's automated, they move on and things almost become boring then, right? 
games games would become boring when they've mastered it. So uh, these are some of the differences. We look very specifically, starting with the person, and then we apply the person's capabilities to the challenge at hand, not the other way around. Gotcha. So more looking at more of a holistic, like individualized learning. And it looks like when I looked at the website, I was like, oh, this is really cool because it looks like it focuses more on the color. And like you said, more of the structure of what you're actually doing and being more in the moment in terms of what you're trying to learn, as opposed, like you said, the opposite way, which is looking more at the curriculum and then you having to fit how you do things into that the, structure. Um, the, the reality of the English language is it's completely illogical. Anyone who tries to make sense of it <laughs> uh, has to come up with rules and exceptions and exceptions to those rules. And we have things like, for example, right. uh, we have common phrases like my last will and testament. Will is an English word. Testament is a French word. They mean exactly the same thing. But for some reason, we use both the English and French words. So why do we right. have this? It's because it is nobody knows. English was a language of uh, exploration. And they went to all these lands and picked up the language and didn't bother making the English word. They just kept the French word or the Portuguese word or the Spanish word or the, or the African word or whatever it might be. And so now we have this language, which is kind of right. Frankenstein. And we have to help kids make sense right. of Frankenstein. So we use color. You notice color from the, from the materials on our website as an instrument for sure. making sense. You immediately can see visually graphemes and phonemes. And then we transfer that awareness from color to black and white. So color is used as pedagogical That's scaffolding good. to help in the process of generating the initial aware awarenesses that you need to help make sense of the language. And we all have to make sense of the language for ourselves. If talking to people and explaining things worked, we would all be geniuses, but unfortunately, it mostly doesn't work. That's why you can't explain <laughs> things. You have to let right. kids discover these things for themselves. You have to let kids make sense of the subject matter of hand by themselves. And you use these pedagogical instruments and scaffolding as, um, as techniques for helping them make their way through this complexity. That is so fascinating. So it's almost like using those colors and using all those different um, visual cues to help them, like you said, be little scientists and discover how to read in a, a more natural way, it's almost exactly like how we learn Elizabeth. how to speak. So it's, uh, first of all, it's, it's, um, it's actually multi-sensory, right? Because when you see the motion and you can take these little tiles and move them around yourselves, there's this uh, kinesthetic aspect to it, which, which helps. There's this visual gotcha. aspect, which um, you can see by the, 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 again, the motion and the color. Um, and, um, um, you know, sure. but, but again, these are, um, these are uh, pedagogical instruments. They're not there for, um, anything else. And you'll also notice that we've eliminated all distractions. There's no cartoons. There's no, um, you know, uh, you know, bings and bongs and little sound, you know, things and things like that. It's all distraction free. And again, the attention spotlight can be exactly on the important bits at hand. Much of what we see from this online learning um, is about uh, attempting to make things interesting. People find a lot of things interesting, especially kids. They find the most boring things interesting. They pick speech out of the air. They don't need to be externally motivated. They will get engaged if they see it as being relevant. And uh, you don't need all these distracting elements in order to, uh, um, you know, piggyback your education on them. If your education's good, they will, they will absolutely 100% engage. 
Wow, that is like a gem of wisdom and knowledge, like drop a bomb right there, Eden, because I say the same thing as an instructional designer. I teach English, which is why I was laughing when you were saying English is totally illogical, which it is. But I always say the same thing if, you know, a lot of times we find when we're building online classes, even in higher education, a lot of times there's a reliance on bells and whistles and simulations and this and that. And I'm always like, if the curriculum is good, if, if the instruction is good, if the content is good, you often don't need all of that because you could just get to the bare essence of what do I need to know? And that stands on its own. It sounds like you're doing the same thing for the K through six. It's just like, give them what they need and make it make sense, make it kinesthetic, make it visual, make it something that engages them and you have them. Because I know with my son, my five-year-old, if you do that, he's sold. He doesn't need all the other bells and whistles in addition to, like you said, that strong content and 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 just scaffolding that will help them to you know it's, learn um, what they need to learn um, I'm, I'm glad you're raising these points Elizabeth, because these, these are very 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 important points so let's look at them uh, what we're really trying to do here so the outcome is a skill and that skill has to be automated so that you don't have to think it through when you're doing it right and um, we are not trying to transmit any knowledge to students right. much of what we see in gotcha. online education and things like that is just transmitting knowledge. We're actually trying to engage students in the process of creating their own knowledge. If you think about this, you know, there's a widespread mm -hmm. conception. I'm good at math. I'm not good at math. They're good at math. They're not good at math. He's good at science. She's mm -hmm. good at science. I'm not good at science. And students somehow have the psychology. I am not good at this. And it's kind of the split of, of yeah. two types of people. The people who are smart actually are able to create new knowledge and create things and then the people who are not as smart who have to be then trans the knowledge has to be transmitted to them well we think that's a whole lot of baloney every single right. human being you your kids <laughs> and everyone else that you've ever met in your lifetime <laughs> is an expert at creating their own knowledge and skill now because we're talking about creating knowledge and skill it implies a process now, here's where things go sideways. There are good processes and there are bad processes. There are processes that are full of distraction. There are processes that are inefficient. There are processes that have a very, very poor ratio of time and energy input to outcome. And we look at education as there is a cost-benefit equation. The student is spending their time and energy and they're getting some sort of benefit. The really great, great educators are ones that can make this process very economical. They're the ones that know that I have to maximize the output for a given student's uh, uh, a bit of time. And this means that the process has to be highly, highly productive. And if we focus our educational activities That's on process and the, and, the, and the processes for generating the skills, we will have a radically new um, view on education and a radically new um, efficiency and uh, educated populace. And this thing is, once students get a taste of it, they just get an appetite. And the appetite grows and grows and grows and it'll be lifelong. Absolutely. That's so encouraging because the fact that you're initiating this at such a young age, and like you said, we don't get those blocks where someone says, I, I hear that in my college classes all the time, where you have someone that's in their 20s saying, I'm not a good writer. And I'm like, that's not true. Anyone could be a good writer, but we we just get we get in that mindset of either you're good at it or you're not. And at that age, if you're in that K through six age and you learn to just create your own knowledge and not worry about 
living up to a standard of this curriculum or somebody telling you, well, this is the knowledge that you need to know, but you're actually creating your own process and learning through that process. Like you said, it's like a gold mine well, because that person can be anything it's true, Elizabeth. that they yeah, want to be you, throughout the rest of, of their life. Writing. You know how good writing comes about. It comes about through writing and then lots and lots of editing. Sure. Lots and lots of editing, right? And, sure. And then you, and you've got different That's ways. It. You've got, you know, proofreading for content and proofreading for grammar and proofreading for readability and proof. I mean, like all sure. of these things, this is a refinement process that you have to go through. And, you know, with all your experience, process. you know this intimately. Absolutely. When a student comes to you and says, like, I'm not good at writing, does that mean that they don't know what to do? Does it mean they have done it, but they've not been successful? Does it mean they've been judged harshly and unfairly? Like it, it's it's a sad statement, don't you think? It's unfortunate yeah. that people would say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do get sad when I hear that. So you're absolutely right. Why don't you give us some tips for those of us that are homeschooling, are working with our 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 kids, and or uh, you know the 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 instructors that are out here working with their classes. And this is this is all new to them as far as the online environment and trying to find tips and strategies to be more successful when you're working with students in this kind of environment. I know that your company has been um, offering your program um, at a, a free rate just to give people just a little bit of help and support in this time. So why don't you uh, maybe provide some tips and strategies that we can all incorporate as we try to assist our, our students or assist our, our kids through this sure. patch of, of working one, from home? Absolute by far most important point is this. Give them a challenge. Why? Because hmm. when you are challenged with something, you turn inside and you examine the resources available to solve the challenge. You examine your experiences, you examine your successes, you examine your failures, you examine all kinds of things. And in fact, successes and failures don't even have the same sort of connotation as we would normally attribute them, attribute to them. Uh, successes or failures are just uh, actions which can help guide future trials and future experiments. So the number one thing that we say is shift your orientation from giving answers and facts and having people your students uh, repeat them to giving them a challenge. Here's a simple little example of that. If you're dealing with higher hmm. education, I'll give you one that's sort of closer to the age of the students that you're, you're talking about. When learning to write, writing starts with this process of having something to say. So let's just speak uninterrupted for three minutes. If you can speak uninterrupted for three minutes, you can refine what you say. And if you have nothing to say, Say, I have nothing to say. I do this exercise all the time. I do it with my kids. I do it with friends. I do it with business associates that have trouble writing reports. And the, the whole exercise here is a full. So the first challenge is, can you talk for three minutes? And if you can't, let's dial it back. Can you talk for two minutes? And if you can't, let's keep dialing it back. So I will start by presenting a challenge. And then based on the feedback that I get from the student or the participant working through the challenge, I will adjust the type of challenge. I may make it more difficult because it's too easy. I may make it easier. That is the first thing. So if we take this perspective that we want to activate all of the experience and all of the powers of our students, we present them with a challenge. Now, if we do this with reading, for example, like if you look at uh, what we're trying to do with Readably, um, we present them first with a video. And the challenge is to... Uh, become aware of how the language works. It goes from left to right. 
it has these things called graphemes and phonemes, although we don't introduce that language because it's not important at the time. We show the language being broken apart. We show the language being put back together again. And then we say, you do it. And we may say, watch the video with the sound off or take out your tiles, uh, the little uh, colored tiles that come with the package uh, and, uh, and, and make words with it. And now, you know what? See this word, Pat? Why don't you reverse that word? What do you get? I didn't tell them what it is. I said, reverse it. Reverse the word Pat is a challenge. So they take the T, they put the beginning, the A goes the middle, it becomes tapped, tap. And then we can say, you know what? Let's change the order again and let's go APT. And now it becomes apt. So out of this one set, this one word, Pat, we can get tap and apt. And then we say, you know what? Let's try the same thing with this word top. T-O-P. There's the word top. Now reverse it, you get pot. Now let's change the order, you get opt. So with very, very little um, uh, a teacher input, the student can actually generate a lot of language. And then you expand this. So for example, if you have the word uh, POTS, P-O-T-S, you can make the word stop, tops, ops, like, oh, and, and, and so on and so on and so on. So with little incremental additions to the challenge, you widen your field of capability quite dramatically. The number one thing I want to say, Elizabeth, to everybody who is listening to this, to everybody who's got kids, to everybody who's got colleagues, to everybody who's even doing it for themselves, give yourself a challenge. And that challenge can be very small. It can be bigger. That. But it's easy to start small and build up from there. That is the orientation you must take when you educate. Do not present facts. Give challenges. I love that concept because it really applies, like you said, from all the way from the initial, like when we look at babies, even that's how they learn and all the way up through college until your doctorate, it should be more hands-on. It should be more experiential. It should be you mining your own knowledge and creating knowledge and applying knowledge rather than, like you said, somebody kind of spewing those facts at you and you taking them in and deciding, you know what, I'm not good at this because I can't get this stuff. And maybe I'm just not good at this particular topic because I can't get this material I can't memorize this material rather than those examples that you gave of creating that knowledge and actually learning on your own oh wow this this is how I create these different words and limiting that interaction with the instructor and just having the instructor kind of guide that process I, I love that because I feel like it's very applicable all the way from newborn to <laughs> it, it, doctoral it really level and, of study. Uh, you know, the, I, I spoke about the, the scientist who inspired me in the beginning. His name was Dr. Caleb Gutenio. And um, he had this great phrase. He goes, I don't teach. I like to learn. And uh, it's, it's a phrase that, you know, when I first mm. heard, it, I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. And, but it just keeps giving deeper and deeper meaning for me and deeper and deeper insights. I don't teach. I let them learn. And, you know, like the emphasis on learn awesome. and the emphasis on I and the emphasis on don't. And what does teaching mean exactly? I, you know, and what does learning really mean? And so um, let me just go through the second tip from, 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 from the way we see it, right? So the first thing is you let them, um, you, you give them a challenge. Sure. And um, what do we notice about people who are engaged in a challenge for the first time? They are fumbly bumbly. They are not good. They are... Um, uh, <laughs> you know, just awkward and cautious and tentative and all these things. And there's a, um, um, uh, you know, it's a characteristic of being at the beginning of the process. Now we have some people who are great at learning who just charge in and they're unfazed by mistakes. They're unfazed by feedback and they're unfazed by all these things that may stop the learning process, right? But 
beginning of the process is typically your fumbly bumbly. But this is when teachers have a tendency to come and rescue the student by giving the answer and by comforting <laughs> them. They are yeah. stronger than you think. They will respect you if you just help yeah. them work through that problem. And the sense of accomplishment they feel when they work through it, you cannot, you, they, there's nothing that can replace that feeling. And when they have that sense of accomplishment, they get confident and they feel strong. So when you give your students a challenge, don't immediately come and rescue them. That is the second tip I want to give. You have to be good at moderating the challenge yeah. up or down. And this takes a lot of practice. It takes patience. And you got to be quiet and you got to have these awkward silences and let them work things through and just let them take their time. They are going to be fumbly bumbly. Now, there is something that happens as they get as they make progress in working through a challenge. They get they get more confident. They get more confident. They get more daring. They take more aggressive steps in their experimentation. They um, uh, they have uh, a little bit more um, uh, experience behind them, and that experience helps to refine the the trials they take. That the, the, there's a narrowing, and they they're able to focus more because now they're building up criteria. This is the next part. Initial working through the challenge builds up criteria. Think of learning to skip rope. When you first start, you're just learning how to coordinate your hands with your jump. Um, how high do you have to jump? How much energy is there? And then when you get a little better at it, maybe you skip once or twice again, and then you know, you're, you're getting better. And then you can, you can get to the point where you've got continuous skipping. And then what you do, you try and double skip. And then what you do from double skip and triple skip, and then you cross your hands over and all these different things. That's what happens when you, um, when you, when you develop criteria about what to do, why to do, why you should do it and how you should do it. So this applies to every subject matter too. It's universal. So, so the teachers and your, and the caregivers in charge of their students have to be tuned into, ah, they're getting some criteria here. Maybe that criteria is right. Maybe that criteria is actually wrong. And this is where the intervention of face-to-face -face teachers and people in person is paramount. And you can't replace this with online. It becomes um, exceptionally productive when the, when, when the more experienced person um, can see the errors in the criteria, the errors in the mental models, and redirect. So that's the next, the next thing. We start with a challenge. Gotcha. The challenges are typical, typically not so competent. As we, as we progress, we become, more, we become more competent. We get criteria. And then criteria allows a refinement in our attempts. And it allows increase in confidence. And then there's another switching point. After the criteria is solidly in place, it's practice. Now, practice is about automating that skill. Gotcha. And so back to the skipping rope example. You practice enough. If you have the if you have um, you have the right challenge, you've developed the right criteria. You know exactly what to do, why to do it, and how to do it. Then it's just a matter of doing it. Knowing what to do is different from 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 actually doing it. And then you have these people who become so exceptionally skilled at what they're doing because they've put in the hours and they've practiced and they've refined it and they've made it automatic. They do it in their sleep. And we call those people Olympic athletes. We call them PhD geniuses. We call them um, charismatic speakers. We call them uh, great <laughs> actors and, and um, you know, uh, uh, whatever it might be. You look at um, the uh, technical achievement achieved by Olympic athletes versus the achievement of the mental achievements by mathematicians and scientists and so on. These are people who have put thousands of hours in musicians, thousands of hours into practice. They have 
put the challenge to them, they've developed the criteria, and then they practice. That's the third and final tip is practice. So we have get the challenge, watch the development of criteria, and then practice. And, you know, even uh, people who are very accomplished in their skills, they still give themselves new challenges. The guitarist may say, hey, let me blend one genre blues with another genre jazz or or let me blend uh, pop and and um, and, uh, you know, big band music together. And, and those people, you know, generally in our society, we call them innovators because that's what they're doing. They're doing things that have never been done before and they're giving them some challenges that have never been done before. Now, what we have to understand here, Elizabeth, is this is the future for our children and we don't know what they're going to do with the skills they develop. We just have to put them in this position where they are used to and comfortable taking on challenges. That is the real essence of education from our perspective. We prepare them for a future which we don't even know what's going to happen. They're prepared for all these eventualities because they've got this baseline in place. They've got this attitude. They've got this way of, 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 of working, this way of learning, and they've got this um, this. Um, a history of accomplishing things that gives them confidence. Awesome. I love that because I feel like that can apply just in general to life, just making sure that you're following those. And like you said, it can apply to a Michael Jordan or it could apply to, um, you know, a Bill Gates or it could apply to just anyone that's accomplished in their field and, and has learned how to be successful. So I really love that you shared those tips and strategies about those of us that are working with our charges and, and trying to make sure that we keep them on track. I want to just finish up by asking you these last couple of questions that we always want to ask our guests because we just want to get a little bit of insight into your personal opinion. What would you like to be remembered for? And what do you feel is the future of education? Um, so um, let me uh, deal with the second one first. Um, we have this education system right now, which okay. largely ignores the capacities and powers of, uh, of our children. Um, this capacity to become aware, um, the fact that they have, uh, they have a history in their life when they enter school of taking on challenges. And um, we need to re-architect our curriculum around people versus people around curriculum. There has been a progression of um, gotcha. uh, education from initially it was called teaching centered. And it was like, I'm going to be the teacher. I'm going to deliver the stuff at the front of the room and everything's going to revolve around me. I'm going to make my students adapt to me. I'm going to make the classroom adapt to me. That's sort of like era number one, let's just call that. Uh, then we have this other era, which is called student-centered. Mm -hmm. Now we're like, oh, let's uh, take the students' needs and, and, and things like that mm -hmm. into account. And let's be more um, uh, responsive to individual students. And then we, now we've got individualized learning plans and all the things that come with like a student-centered world. The next phase, and this phase is already underway in many, many, many cases, but it's called learning-centered. And it's about the configuration of the teacher, the subject matter, and the process, and the student around learning, around the learning process. And the learning process is different for every student. There are certain things that will be more universal than others, but we have to respect that learning is learning, and we have to put our education around the learning system, right? So that's what I... That's my hope for the future yeah, of education. Sure. Now we have a lot of barriers and challenges because that is a wholesale re-education of the, of of um, you know of, of how we produce teachers and 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 how we how students look at their attitudes. In fact, it puts a lot of responsibility on the students now. 
they're 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 like we, we talk about student responsibility but mm. this last one learning center like they are the ones who are responsible for their learning and the teachers are the ones responsible for making sure that learning happens the right conditions the right um the right context for that learning to happen now that's that's uh, sort of my um you know fantasy island dream for education and um we're going to do our little part to help that happen and there's other people <laughs> doing that around the world and you know i just want to acknowledge that this is not something that we invented um, we're trying to do the best things, uh, you know, inspired by other great people. Um, so now, what do I want to be remembered for? Uh, that's a big, big, big question. But here's the thing. You know, I look at people very simply. Um, people have strengths and they have weaknesses. So when people come to you with a strength, I want to point out to them, look at, um, there's some flaws in what you're doing and uh, you want to probably in improve this. And when people come to me with a weakness, I want to say, look at, there's some strengths in what you're doing and you probably want to exacerbate that a little bit more. Um, I feel like we nurture people who are weak and we cheer people who are strong. And I don't like that. And here's why I don't like it because it stops the process. If you nurture some, so somebody comes back and says, yeah, I just won the competition or I just did great in this test. I got 98 out of hundred on the test. And you say, Oh, great job. Great job. What are you doing there? You're basically saying that the learning is done. But it isn't done. There's somebody smarter than you. There's somebody better than you. There's more learning to happen here. There's deeper that you can go. You're not perfect. And nobody is perfect. And I don't like this, um, this notion that we celebrate the victories and we, um, we mourn the losses. In losing, there may be incredibly valuable mm -hmm. lessons that we just have to highlight. And we have to then go into a well of strengths and we have to figure out yeah. how, to, how, to, how to improve from there. And it's the same thing for when we, um, when we win. When you win, you didn't win everything. You have some weaknesses and you can improve those weaknesses. And you see very, <laughs> very few peoples, people in the world who are just, they don't care if they win or lose. They're just interested in getting better. And that's what I'm interested in. So, you know, when I work with my kids, for example, um, my kids already know this because they, 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 they've gotten this before, right? When they come with a 98 and my daughter just came with a 98, um, I just, I, my, my question to them is, how do you feel about this? Not like, that's great. Awesome. Congratulations on a 98. I'm like, how do you feel about it? Because my opinion doesn't matter. It's her opinion that matters. And so I, I would sure. like this planet of ours mm -hmm. to change. In every success, there's a wee bit of failure. And in every failure, there's a wee bit of success. And if we focus on the failures in our success and the successes in our failure, we will never stop learning. We'll never stop trying to improve. This is the way that I conduct myself. I'm unmoved by my own successes. I'm un, I'm un, um, uh, I, I just don't feel a sense of satisfaction. I just continue the process and continue and continue trying to get better. And that's with every single thing that I do. And I don't want to make myself out to be some um, uh, you know, robotic super, superhuman. I'm not. I'm as flawed as everybody. I have all my <laughs> more flaws than people than most people have. But I don't care because I'm trying to improve them. So if I could be remembered for anything, I'd be remembered for this. Hey, that was the guy who said, look, it, um, whatever you have, there's more in you. Whatever you have, that you, you, you can do better still. Hmm. That's a testament to lifelong learning. And that's definitely something that I can get behind and I'm, I'm all about as well because that, that's how we're going to all continue to improve and get better as we move through this thing called life. So I appreciate you coming on and, and giving us your perspective, giving us some tips and strategies that we can use as all, the, all those of us that are homeschooling and, and even the teachers that are out there trying to continue, continue to support our students. 
I really well, appreciate you taking the time and to I speak with me today. I wish you all the success in your podcast, and I can see that you've done a great job in growing it. I, 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 I would uh, you know, hope that you can continue this because um, bringing these perspectives to people is valuable, and uh, you know the diversity of input ultimately drives quality of output. So um, it is our pleasure to join you today, and you know more, more success to you. enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp experience, please visit edupexperience.com. That's E-D-U-P experience.com. And please feel free to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast. We really, really appreciate your support. You've been listening to the EdUp experience, where we make education your business with your host, Elizabeth Leibach.